All right. Well, hopefully everybody did get the notice from last Thursday and didn't try to make the trek in. I was telling some who were here early that I did have a field trip with my daughter over in Lancaster. Got over there beautifully. Took us three and a half hours to get back. <laughs> and that's pretty good. If you know the Lanc Hack Lancaster campus, we were pretty, pretty close to that. So that was about the trip, which normally you can do in what, a half, 45 minutes-ish, something like that. So yeah, it was three and a half hours. No accidents though, which was good. Um, so we have coming up as of right now, and I'm going to see what I get through today just to make sure. Um, well, the exam won't change, but homework four, I'm leaving due on the 27th. If we'd had the lecture last time, we'd have been just fine because we would have been through all of this chapter and just working on the stuff we needed. Uh, right now it's going to be a little tight getting through all of that, but I'm going to leave the homework due there just to see where I end up. Um, unless I'm way behind, I, I hate to push it off to the 29th because then I don't have the option of giving you the answers before the exam. Because I, I mean, I could have it due at 6 o'clock, that would give you like an hour, two hours before that to look at the answers, which isn't really a lot. So um, I'm going to leave it on the 27th for right now. Let's see where we end up at the end of the day, end of class today. Um, the review quizzes, I will, should have those up later today. I've got all of the information for them for this section, so they'll be up later today. You can do those uh, sometime before the exam. And the exam will be as scheduled. If we do not get through everything we need for it, I'll either cut out a part of it and cut out chapter 27. I mean, I'll do something. I don't want to push the exam. Obviously, I can't push the exam off anymore. You don't want to be taking an exam the day the projects do. And if we keep pushing things off, there's just, there are no more days left to, to go. So the exam will be the 29th regardless. But I may cut out some questions. Or if I have questions on chapter 27, I won't count them in the exam. I may leave them in for you and not actually count them as part of the exam. So. Otherwise, we still should be OK to get through everything with what we have left. Uh, we're going to be a lab short right now. So you, uh, you know, if you noticed, I just put in this morning, everybody got credit for being here last Thursday as attendance. So yay. Um, I'm going to do the same thing for the lab. There's going to be lab for snow day, and everybody gets 20 points. So, so great, free lab. I don't, I don't have time. You do not have time to make up a lab. There's just no way I can take a whole lab cla class out to do lab and still get through the rest of the class. Otherwise, we still should be on pretty good shape to at least get through everything uh, before the before the final. Although technically, I hate to skip it, but the last chapter can be skipped because it's not a required part of the course. But it's life in the universe, and I, it's one that people actually like to. <laughs> to here and after all this. So I hate to skip it, but if we had to, if it came down to it, chapter 30 technically is not required as part of the design of the class. So, so we should be okay on that. Everything else should stay the same. So questions before I jump into our picture for today. Uh, this is Oumuamua. Well, it's not Oumuamua. It's Oumuamua's orbit. Um, this is, uh, you may have heard of this one. This is an astro this is the interstellar asteroid. In fact, let me go back to a previous picture of the day from November 22nd, boy, just about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, that this is the interstellar asteroid. So this is an asteroid that came relatively close to the Earth and was, its trajectory was 
it was calculated where it came from. It didn't come from anywhere within our solar system. So it actually came from outside our solar system. Now that's not unusual. We, we fling, Jupiter flings all sorts of stuff out into space, interstellar space. And with billions upon billions of things floating around, even though space is so empty, there's a decent chance that once in a while something will happen to pass close. So this is actually, I mean, it's the interesting thing is that chance to look at very briefly as it came through, an object that was not part of our solar system. So what we're actually looking at today is not the object itself, but the trajectory of its orbit. And this is actually going to show its orbit, how it came in. There's the inner solar system and out through Jupiter. And you'll see it comes through, loops around the sun, and then heads back out into space. Now as we zoom in here, this is the deviation. It's about 40,000 kilometers, about 25,000 miles in terms of difference. And that doesn't stay up there very long. Let me go back here so we can see that. I think their JPL logo stays up longer than the actual difference. There we go. But it's not a very big difference. I mean, 40,000 kilometers is not a whole lot especially as you start getting out distances in the solar system. But it's significant and very measurable. And we can calculate exactly the orbit. We know how it came in. We knew its speed. We could measure its speed, how it was coming through. We could measure the gravitational force of the sun and Mercury and Jupiter and Earth and all the planets. And we could calculate what its orbit should be. That would be the red line there. That's what was expected. We found that it was off a little bit. So one of the things that is thought there, because we understand gravity so well, we knew how it should move, is that maybe there, when it came close to the sun, like a comet, it got heated up and it produced little jets of material. So it produced its own little mini engines that propelled it and changed its, its course just a little bit. And even just a small change at that instant when it passed close to the sun can add up. Where was it back there? See if I can get it there. Even a small change as it came in close to the sun here and was heated up, even a small change there can create a large difference later on. So it can a little bit of a change there makes it very, lar very large. So it's one of the things that we're studying. I mean, obviously the object is now gone. It's not something that we can, it's staying in our solar system. It came in, looped around the sun, and it's heading back out to interstellar space. But still trying to study it is trying to help, help us to understand these types of objects a little bit better. All right, questions? All right, well, let's get back to chapter 25. And if I, as I said, if I was asking earlier as people were coming in, if I recall correctly, I had just finished up with the spiral structure and the density waves. So I think I was on to determining the mass of our galaxy. I'm not hearing any yelling, screaming that I did not. So I'm going to go ahead and start. Have you have this slide? Did I go further than that? Yes. How far do you go? How far do you? What, just this slide. Just that slide. So I'd probably just come up to that one and never went any further. So I'll just go ahead and start there, because that's the beginning of that section anyway. But you did see that. I, I must have put that up then. It Oops. And I start from the beginning. Well, well. All right. Let's go down and do from that slide. OK, so at least I was remembering correctly. It's tough when it's been a week. So here's where we were. 
thereabouts. This is what we want to look at now is how are we going to determine the mass of a galaxy. Unlike, you know, even like planets, we can't weigh it. We can't go put it on a great scale to determine how much matter is there. We have to use other indirect methods. And one of the things that we can do is use orbits. And if you remember way back one of the early chapters, we talked about Kepler's laws. And Kepler's laws were, could be used to determine the mass of something. How the moon orbits the Earth allows you to determine the mass of the Earth. How one of Jupiter's moons orbits it can determine the mass of Jupiter. Earth orbiting around the sun can help you determine the mass of the sun. So whatever the central object is that's being orbited. So if you could pick out a star way out at the edge of the galaxy and calculate its orbit. How, long is, how fast is it moving so you could figure out how long it's going to take to make one orbit. You could find out how far away it is from the center of the galaxy. You can then use Kepler's third law and calculate the mass of the galaxy. Now when you do that, it determines the mass inside the orbit. So you don't want to use the sun. The sun is where? Over here someplace. Because it only determines how much mass is inside its orbit. This matter outside doesn't affect its orbit. So it's only the material inside that matters. So you want the star that's furthest away. And that will determine the mass of a galaxy. So all you have to do is find these most distant stars, most distant gas clouds, determine their orbits, and you can get this. You get this mass. It works as long as there isn't much out here, as long as most of the material is inside. So for the Earth going around the Sun, if we want to use the Earth orbiting the Sun, there's a little bit of mass out there. There's Jupiter, there's Saturn. Compared to the mass of the Sun at the center, you know, there's specks of dust. So they don't really adjust the mass at all. One of the problems that we find and that we're finding is that these stars aren't orbiting as we'd predict. They are orbiting at a much higher speed than we would expect if they were outside most of the mass of the galaxy. And that leads us to the idea of what we call dark matter. That there is a lot of dark matter. It's invisible to us. It doesn't give off any kind of light. Not just visible light. It doesn't give off radio waves or x-rays or gamma rays. It gives off nothing. But we can detect its gravity. And one of the ways we detect that is by looking at the orbits of the stars. So this is a graph of what we call a rotation curve. Which all it is is looking at the velocities of stars as you get further and further away from the center of the galaxy. So here would be right at the center. As you get further and further away, out to about here, that's about the visible edge of the galaxy. And we can still find things a lot further out. And as we go further and further out, what we expect is that eventually you get outside most of the mass. You've got that most distant object. And you're determining the mass of the galaxy itself. And then things will start to slow down. So it would follow this blue curve. Just as the planets, Mercury moves very fast. right? All the mass is at the sun. Ignore the fact that the planets even have much mass. So you have the sun. Mercury moves around really fast. Venus slower. Earth, Mars, Jupiter. As you get out to the outer planets, they move slower and slower and slower. So this is what we would expect to see what we're out, once we're outside all the mass. When we make measurements, going out even more than twice the visible size of the galaxy, the speeds don't decrease, they actually increase. So it leads to kind of one of two things. 
This is not just seen in our galaxy. We see this all over the place. So it's, it, the observations are real. So either there is a lot of dark matter out there adding a lot of mass to the galaxy. Not just a little bit. It's not like throwing you know, a few million times the mass of the sun out there. This is actually 20 times the amount of matter that we see in a galaxy. For every star you see, there's 20 stars worth of matter that's completely invisible to us. For every gas cloud you look at, it's 20, to- 20 of those in invisible matter outside the edge of our galaxy. That's a lot of material. It's not just that, oh, we need a few, few black holes out there that would explain this. We need galaxies. We need 20 galaxies worth of material out beyond the edge of our visible galaxy to explain what we're seeing here. That's one explanation. That's the one that astronomers uh, believe. That would be their consensus right now, that there's some kind of dark matter there. The other possibility, which isn't accepted as well, but is still a possibility, is that gravity isn't understood. Maybe gravity works differently on those larger scales. So maybe general relativity doesn't work on that kind of scale. Problem is general relativity is so well tested that most people don't want to accept that right now. But there are, there are astronomers who are working on other theories of gravity that would try to explain this without having dark matter. So I just want to put that aside. That is a possibility. But for right now, I'm going with dark matter. That is what most astronomers believe is, the, is causing all this. So there has to be a lot, a lot of matter out there. And if there is, you know, what could it be? Well, it can't be any type of ordinary matter. It can't just be lots of hydrogen gas. We detect it. Starlight would travel through the hydrogen gas. It would absorb certain wavelengths. We'd be able to see that there were you know, billions of solar masses worth of hydrogen out there. If it were things like oh, any type of ordinary, we detect the radio emission. We detect some kind of absorption lines. Black holes would be detected. If we had, they'd be giving off x-rays as they accreted matter, as they gathered matter. And it would also, if there were lots of black holes out there in the halo of our galaxy, it would throw off the abundances. That would mean there were lots of supernovae, lots of heavy elements out there, which they're not. So we tend to rule out certain things like those. Well, brown dwarfs are planets. Maybe really small objects are very likely to form. Remember when stars form. Most massive stars, there's, for every one of those, there might be 20 of these reasonably massive stars compared to 100 like the sun, compared to thousands of smaller ones. So as you keep going down, then there'd be even more brown dwarfs and planets. But the masses are tiny. It can take you know, 100 brown dwarfs to make one sun-like star. So think of how many you need to make the billions upon billions of stars that you'd need. It's a possibility, but you'd also detect these if there were that many of them out there. Because you would need not just billions of them, you'd need many trillions of them out there to be able to explain this. And they can be detected by gravitational lensing. If there's that many of them out there, they're all over, every once in a while one's going to pass right in front of a star and cause it to brighten, to flare in brightness. Just a tiny bit, but it's easily detectable. So we can use measurements like that, the fact that we don't see the stars flaring in brightness, that there just can't be that many of them. The other one is some kind of exotic subatomic particle. Sounds strange, 
that there's some other particle out there that has mass that doesn't interact with anything. Right? Remember the neutrinos way back when we talked about the sun? They didn't interact. They went right through the center of the sun and they're flowing right through us right now. Now they have very little mass. They wouldn't be very useful. But could there be other exotic particles like that that instead are very massive, that have lots of mass, and that could make up this dark matter? Research continues on that. I don't think we have any good uh, answer right now. But it seems to be almost our best bet is that there are some kind of exotic particles there. And we will come back when we get to galaxies in a little bit and look at dark matter even a little bit more. But our, our Milky Way is one of the first places that we see evidence for that because of the way the stars are moving, that there has to be excess matter out there. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that we're only seeing a little tiny fraction of the universe. You know, 20 times, we're only seeing, you know, 1 20th of the matter in the universe. All the stars that we study, the galaxies that we look at, the nebulae, the planets, everything that we look at is only a very small portion. So that counts for our galaxy, that counts for other galaxies. But most of the mass of the universe, 96% of it, is something that we can't detect except through its gravity. It doesn't give off light. And again, that means it doesn't give off radio waves, that means it doesn't give off x-rays, it doesn't give off gamma rays, it gives off nothing. It's invisible. So no matter what telescope we put up there to detect it, we're not going to see it. The only way we can detect it is through its gravity. And we can use, these are clusters of galaxies, the blue is actually the dark matter that has to be present to explain how the galaxies are moving. Because the galaxies within these would spread apart. If there wasn't enough matter, enough gravity there to hold them, they're moving so fast that they would just disperse out into space. Wouldn't destroy the galaxies or anything, they just slowly spread out into space over billions of years. The fact that they're still in those, these clusters means that there has to be a lot more matter around there. And in fact, more than the 20 times. Sometimes it goes up to 50 or 100 times the amount of matter that you see. So if you think about that, you see a galaxy in a cluster, you need 50 or 100 more galaxies worth of material to explain the observations. That's what we need to explain the observations based on the gravity as we understand it right now. So that most of the matter that we see, everything that we study, the stuff that we're made up of here on Earth, the stuff that the sun is made up of, the planets, the stars, all the things that we've studied, is only a tiny fraction of the material in the universe. So again, we're going to come back to this a little bit when we look at other galaxies as well. But first, for our, ga our galaxy, we want to look a little bit closer to the center. So the galactic center, center of our galaxy, is invisible in the visible. You can't see it. That sounds a little strange that it's invisible. All that means is that in terms of visible wavelengths, the stuff that we see with our eyes, all of those are blocked out by dust. There's so much dust in here that you can't see it. But actually, the edge of our galaxy is right about in here. That's about the center of our galaxy is right about in there. If you go out in the early fall and look south, you're looking at the direction of the center of our galaxy. You, d you usually don't see this tremendous bright glow on the southern horizon unless you happen to be looking down towards Baltimore or something, right? Close enough there. But you will see 
you'll just see you'll see if you have a really dark site you might see the Milky Way stretching down there but you won't see the galactic center if you point a radio telescope there it's the brightest radio object in the sky so what you see there very bright in radio waves almost invisible invisible light so we can use that what we can use is other wavelengths we can use things like radio waves to study it we can use other things to be able to study you know what is going on at our at the center of our Milky Way and as we look a little bit closer okay. if we try to look a little bit closer we have what we call Sagittarius A star this is that supermassive black hole at the center so this is actually a radio image of the center of our galaxy looking down towards the center uh, where are we Sagittarius A right in the center here this central portion is the central part of it now there's some other pieces around there Sagittarius A that's a radio astronomy convention for naming when you name the brightest you name the brightest object you find in a constellation gets a letter A and then Sagittarius B would be the next brightest object and so on so Sagittarius A just means it was the brightest object seen in the constellation of Sagittarius it's also the brightest one seen in the sky so when we look at it there this is a black hole and we're going to see some measurements that give us the uh, that demonstrate that it's about four million times the mass of the Sun there's just no way you can compress any other that much material into such a small space and this is tiny when we get down to the size of Sagittarius A star we're getting th something the size a little bit bigger than our solar system how can you put millions of stars into that space without them colliding and coalescing into a black hole you just can't get anything that anything into space that small but we see we do see stars we do see star clusters in the areas some of these are actually supernova remnants this circle one here is actually an example of a supernova remnant I'm trying to think there's another one up there so lots of stars lots of things going on at the center now if we do try to look into it in the infrared we can use the infrared to actually see through some of that dust and actually look down closer to the center and we can look at the orbits these are stars close to the center of our galaxy you can imagine what it might be like if you could live there you have all these stars nearby you know within light year within a few four light years you might have instead of having one star Alpha Centauri you might have dozens or a hundred stars within that lights the night sky would be incredibly bright because there would be so many stars because you'd be there now you wouldn't want to be there for other reasons you're close to the supermassive black hole and while it's not just going to suck you in it is producing a lot of radiation which would sterilize anything so it's not actually a good place to look for life but if you can imagine being there you know the few stars we see in the sky now would look like nothing compared to what you'd be able to see there but we can use these stars to be able to determine the orbits uh, determine their orbits and use that use Kepler's laws to determine the mass so there's examples of a few of these stars that have been watched over decades and they will move around in little orbits here or bigger orbits here all orbiting around some central point this one is interesting number 14 if you look at how it orbits this orbit takes I think it's about two decades about 20 years but if you watch how it goes it goes up and around and it comes down here and it almost turns around instantly 
can imagine what, what can whip a star around. A star moving pretty fast going one direction. You know, one month, a month later is now turned around and going the other direction at a similar speed. You know, we couldn't do that. You know, nothing in our solar system could begin to do that. The only way we can explain it, and that also limits the size because if this thing were any bigger, you know, S14 would crash into it and would be gone. It wouldn't be making orbits around something. It has to actually be orbiting something that's smaller than that. So we can use that, we can use that orbit to determine the mass. And we find that it's about 4 million times the mass of our sun. So in order to explain this orbit and this orbit and this orbit, we can do calculations, figure out the period, figure out the semi-major axis, how far away they are, and that gives us rise to a black hole that has to be about 4 million times the mass of our sun. So getting down very, very tiny there, I don't know if this gives me a scale, oh there we are. There's some of the outer orbits in our solar system just to give you scale size as to how, how small we're getting in there. You know, this thing has to be smaller than our solar system, but in order to explain the motions, it's 4 million times the mass of our sun. Otherwise, these stars wouldn't be moving. You, nothing else is going to turn that star around that rapidly. So what do we know about this? Well, if we look at the size, based on some of those orbits, 4 million solar masses in an area less than the orbit of Mercury. It's 4 million, you just can't put 4 million stars, even big stars, within the orbit of Mercury and not have them all coalesce into a black hole anyway. How are they moving that they're not actually all colliding together? They'd be so close together they would form a black hole even if you could somehow put them there. So the only way to explain this much mass in this small of a size is a supermassive black hole. It continues to grow, it gets bigger and bigger. Because it does, as I said, they're not cosmic vacuum cleaners, but they do gather matter that happens to get close to them. It's not really a lot. It gains about one solar mass a year just from random dust and gas around it. So it does slowly gain some mass. Uh, you do get, it does consume larger objects. So stars, gas clouds will be consumed by it if they pass too close. They can be ripped apart. These can actually give off excess energy. Rarely, you know, it's, it's in the tens of thousands of year range, but you can actually pick up those and you can see those maybe in our galaxy, maybe in other galaxies through the, uh, through a burst in activity, through a burst in x-rays as that star is ripped apart. Star gets too close to the event horizon, it gets ripped apart, part of the accretion disk, heated up to high temperatures and gives you off a burst of x-rays. So it's one of the ways that we can detect those. And we'll look that you know, our galaxy with this is not unusual. When we look at other galaxies coming up, other galaxies have black holes, in many cases, much larger than ours. So finishing up here, um, how can we determine the mass of our galaxy? Again, we, we use the same method whether we're trying to determine the mass of the whole galaxy or the mass of the, just the central portion. We use Kepler's laws. It's the only way we can really efficiently determine masses of most of these objects. So we use it at the center of our galaxy to find out that there's a black hole of about 4 million solar masses. Still tiny compared to the hundreds of millions of uh, stars within our galaxy overall. And we can use it to measure this, and this tells us that most of the mass of our galaxy is some dark matter that we, un that we don't know. We don't know what it is. 
And again, as I said, we'll come back and look at that a little bit more when we talk about other galaxies. I don't know if I'll be able to give you any more information about it or anything you know, better but other than that it's unknown, but I'll try to talk about it a little bit more. All right, questions? Otherwise, we'll move on to what I think is the last section of this, which is stellar populations. Uh, what we, when we look at our galaxy, we actually divide it into two populations. We find two stars, two sets of stars. There are stars that orbit within our galaxy, in the plane, in the disk, that move around through the spiral arms like our sun. And those are what we call the disk stars. And there are halo stars which move on all sorts of random orbits, going up or down or any, any which way. So they can go all sorts of angles. Those are what we call the halo stars. So disk stars within the disk orbit like planets orbit in the solar system, around in nice straight, nice, nice, nice regular circular-ish orbits. And you get these other ones that move in very elliptical orbits, very angled orbits away. And those are what we call the halo stars. Now there are some differences between these two when we look at them. And in fact, uh, Walter Bade uh, studied stellar populations in the Andromeda galaxy. Uh, so he was looking at these. He was actually out in, this would have been the observatory out in Los Angeles. And it was during the beginning of World War II. So at beginning of World War II, right after Pearl Harbor, Los Angeles was dark. Obviously, it was not lit up at night because there were fears of another attack of another attack on the west coast. So, he had very nice clear skies. He was also German. So, he wasn't really he was kind of just confined to the observatory. They, you know, were not necessarily trusting of any more than they were trusting of a lot of Japanese Americans. They also were not trusting of German Americans at the time. So, for him, he got to be able to just be locked up, not locked up, but stayed at the observatory and was able to observe populations in the Andromeda galaxy. He wouldn't have been able to see these if the lights of Los Angeles were on. It would have been too bright. So because it was off, he was able to look at the stars and pick out different stars in the Andromeda galaxy. And he divided them into two groups. The population one, which are the disk stars, and the population two, which were the halo stars. That's the same thing we looked at here. Population one, stars in the disk. Population two are stars in the halo. So two distinct types of stars. And other than just how they move, there were some other differences to them. They had very distinct patterns to them. That if you looked at the population one, which were the disk stars, they were in the disk, they had circular orbits, they had a wide range of ages, young stars, old stars, and they had high metal abundances. I'll qualify again. When I say metals, that's anything other than hydrogen or helium. Because astronomer, hydrogen, helium, everything else is metal abundance. Because that's the very tiny fraction of everything. So when I say metals, we're not thinking of just things like iron and tin and lead, things that we think of as metals. But oxygen is a metal. Carbon is a metal. All of those are parts of the, when we say high metal abundance, it means they've got lots of heavy elements, not just hydrogen and helium. When we look at the population two stars, they're in the disk and the halo. We can find them anywhere. They have very eccentric and tilted orbits. They're all old though, no young stars. Don't find any of these that are young. And they have very low metal abundances. They're not only hydrogen and helium, but they're mostly hydrogen and helium. They have a tiny fraction of the heavier elements. So they haven't been as enriched. 
So essentially you have a group of old stars that formed a long time ago and a group of young stars that formed relatively recently. In the real world, of course it's not that distinct. There's this group and this group. There's probably a whole variation in between that we could find if we look for. So there'll be stars that are in between these two, but those are the two basic groups that are looked for. So what this leads back to is something about the formation of our galaxy. How did our galaxy form? Well, tend to think of it in general as to how a star formed. A big cloud of gas and dust that was rotating slowly started to collapse, collapsed down, everything collapsed down into a disk, just like a star forms, collapsed down into a disk and forms a planetary system. Well, a galaxy would collapse down and form a disk as well with the stars in it. Uh, most of the mass at the center, ignoring dark matter for right now, and then a disk of material further out. So as it collapsed down. But when it did, very early on, some stars would have been forming. And those would have been our halo stars. We see many of them now in what we call globular clusters. Great clusters of stars that are orbit around our galaxy outside the disk. But all of these would be halo stars as the gas continued to collapse. Once the stars formed, they had orbits and they would just follow their random orbit that they happened to have at the time. So eventually you'd have a disk which now still has gas and dust and is still forming stars, so it can have new stars, but you have all of these old stars that formed. When they originally formed, there were all sorts of stars there. There were blue stars and red stars, you know, big massive stars. Over time you weren't forming any new ones, so you got rid of those, those stars that only live a million years, they're gone after a million years, no new ones were formed. Those that live 100 million years, after 100 million years, they're gone. So over time, over 10 billion years, you've aged it down to where the oldest stars might be stars like our sun. And what they evolve into, red giants and things that you would see. You wouldn't see any more massive stars, whereas in the disk you would still see those. They would still be present. So that's what happened. Those old stars just remained up here, remained around and formed into, uh, sorry, and left us with the two populations. So the first population, two stars, formed first. Right? One of those things where astronomers just, when he originally developed them, they were population one, population two with no specific meaning. Now that we've looked at them and studied them, we find out that population two stars are actually the old ones. Population one stars are the younger stars. So this is one way to be able to form, uh, form our galaxy. One of the other models that look, is looked at is a merger model. That's the galaxy actually formed from the merger of other galaxies. Uh, and it's really thought now, even more so, that the galaxy formation might not have been so nice and peaceful as this nice gas cloud condensing down and forming stars, that it was actually a very violent formation. Not just our galaxy, but other galaxies. Collisions between galaxies are incredibly common. And early on in the history of the universe, they would have been even more common. So we see other galaxies. The Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy is one of the ones that is near us that's actually being ripped apart by our galaxy as it orbits through. And if we look, we actually find all of these, you know, there's our galaxy there, but all of these other little galaxies, we find streams left over from where they've been ripped apart as they pass close enough to, the, to our galaxy. The 
the gravity of our galaxy tears them apart, rips them off into streams. In the long run, they'll actually eventually be coalesced into our galaxy. So there are things that have happened you know, within tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years. In the long run, they'll actually be uh, formed into our galaxy. They'll slowly uh, fade out. But we see multiple streams. That means multiple collisions. That's not just one collision. That's multiple things that have collided with our galaxy. And we have others that are still ongoing right now. And in fact, the big one yet to come is uh, the collision with Andromeda. That's not a real picture. That's the artist's conception of what the sky might look like you know, billions, many billions of years from now. What did I say? Is it about four, three to four billion years? So Earth would still be around then? And Andromeda Galaxy, which right now, if you know where to look in the fall, it's a little faint spot of light uh, in the northern sky. But if you come back in a couple billion years, it's going to get bigger and bigger. It's getting closer and closer to us. So billions of years from now, as it's getting closer, you'd be able to see this galaxy, not just as a tiny point of light, but as a big chunk of the sky. Eventually, the two will collide. Now, a collision of galaxies is not a collision as you think about it. You think of a car collision, smash, two cars crash together and everything stops. Galaxies are mostly empty space. They kind of whoosh right through each other. So the stars don't actually collide together. The two, the, our galaxy and the Milky Way, will then sort of collide gravitationally. Their gravitational fields will collide. Their structures will get completely distorted. And most likely, they'll eventually coalesce into a single galaxy in several billion years. So we'll be part of another, newer, bigger galaxy in a few billion years. And in terms of what would happen to the Earth, couldn't say for sure. I mean, the stars will get distorted. Those streamers do get thrown out. You know, We could be part of one of those streams that gets thrown out. We could end up being very little affected. It really depends on how everything goes. But after they collide eventually, after a billion years or so, small time uh, galactically speaking, they'll settle back down and there'll just be a single galaxy there. So we are on a collision course as well. Again, three to four billion years. So we got, we got a little while to, before we have to really worry about it. But over time, and nothing we'll ever notice, but Andromeda will actually get bigger and bigger in the sky. And this is an artist's conception as to what you'd see as it starts getting even closer, you know, billions of years from now. All right, so finishing up our galaxy. We divided them into two pop we divided the stars into two populations. Population one, the disk stars, population two, the halo stars. We talked about two different ways of galaxies can form. And it's probably a combination of those two. That originally the smaller galaxies probably formed through this process that we talked about in terms of collapsing down. And then it was enhanced by collisions. And they're important to really be able to explain the structures that we see. Uh, today. So, questions on our galaxy? All right. Well, we will head off to look at some other galaxies then. Uh, 26. So, we want to look at some of the different. Come on, there we go. Some of the different, some of the other galaxies. You know, our galaxy is one, and we studied our star, but then we wanted to go out and look at other stars. What are other stars like? So, what are other galaxies like? The only galaxy we've looked at so far is what we call a spiral galaxy, and that is what the Milky Way is. But there actually are more types than that, and 
what Edwin Hubble did, a familiar name, we've talked about him a few times before, uh, Hubble Space Telescope being one big one that was named after him. But he classified the galaxies as there were spiral, ga spiral galaxies of two different types. There's actually what we call normal spirals and barred spirals. And then there were elliptical galaxies, which didn't have any kind of disk. And there's irregular galaxies, which don't fit on his classification, but they were the ones that just didn't fit anything else. And then in between, there was another type right here that he called the lenticular galaxies. Now, spiral galaxies were like ours. They have a disk. They have spiral arms. Uh, they have gas and dust. They're forming stars. So they're very similar. You know, everything we talked about with our galaxy applies to the two arms going out here. The only difference between the two is that these galaxies, the spiral arms seem to go right down to the core. In these ones, the spiral arm seems to come off a bar. There's a bar through the center of the galaxy. So that's the only difference between them, between spiral and barred spiral. The elliptical galaxies are just big blobs of stars. No gas or dust, anything else, just a big blob of stars. They are classified, and we'll look at, by how spherical they are. They're a perfect sphere. They'd be uh, E for elliptical and then zero. I'm going to go over the classifications in a little bit in the coming slides. Um, if they're very flattened to like a football shape, then they're up to an E7. The lenticulars are in between. They have some properties of both galaxies. They're not irregular. They are disk galaxies. They're flattened down to a disk, but they don't have gas and dust. So. They, they're, they're, they have no gas and dust, much like the ellipticals, but they're disk galaxies like the spirals. So they were put as a uh, point in here in between the two. Now Hubble may have looked at this originally as how galaxies evolve over time. That maybe you had this big blob of a galaxy that slowly condensed down to a disk and then developed spiral arms. We know that can't happen now, but that may have been how he originally looked at this as you know, sort of how, does the, how do galaxies evolve. And it makes sense that you'd have this big blob of galaxies. But one of the things you can't get is you know, where is all the gas and dust come from? How do you make gas and dust appear that doesn't exist in these galaxies all of a sudden appear and start forming stars? So we'll look a little bit more about how galaxies do evolve later on. But what I want to go first through first is really the classifications. So I'll look at these all in a little bit more detail. We have spiral galaxies. They have a very distinct spiral or pinwheel structure. This is what's known as the Whirlpool Galaxy. And it's very, got a very nice spiral going all the way down to, to, to the core. Just like our galaxy, they've got a disk, they've got a central bulge, they have a halo, they have spiral arms. I mean, everything I talked about for our galaxy applies right here as well. There, it's because our galaxy is a spiral, actually technically a barred spiral galaxy. They have star formation. Stars are currently forming in this. We can see things like clusters of stars, young clusters of stars. We can see emission nebulae, which are also associated with star formation. And they're all tied into the spiral arms. So when we look at the spiral arms, they tend to have a bluish tinge to them. That's all the hot blue stars that have formed within them. The pinkish tinge that you can sometimes see right around here is hydrogen gas being excited by those stars. So seeing both of those two is evidence of star formation. When we look at elliptical galaxies, we don't see any of that. 
So they have, what did I say here? Uh, yeah, they have ongoing star formation. They have a population of old stars as well, meaning that stars formed over a long period of time. You had stars that formed billions of years ago. You have stars that, form, that are still forming today. Now those are regular spiral galaxies, but we also have something more like our Milky Way, which is a barred spiral. So they have a bar going through the center, and then the spiral arms just come off the ends of the bar instead. Um, other than that, everything is the same. Everything that I told you for the uh, galaxy, it has the disk, the bulge, the halo, everything else is exactly the same. So we don't change anything else. About two-thirds of the galaxies, actually we call them normal spirals and barred spirals, but about two-thirds of the galaxies have barred spirals. So barred spirals are really the normal galaxy or a little more normal because there's two-thirds of them or that. And what we call a normal spiral galaxy is about one-third of, of the spiral galaxies. So most of the galaxies, including ours, have this. Why they have it, I have no, we have no clue. I won't say I just have no clue, but as, uh, the research as to why a bar forms is something that is still ongoing. Why a bar would actually form within these. Obviously it does because it's not just one galaxy where we see it. It's many, many galaxies where we see it. So how do we classify spiral galaxies? Well, the classification of galaxies is a lot more intuitive than the classification of stars. Right? OBAFGKM. Try to remember that, right? It's all scattered letters trying to keep track of them. Spiral galaxies are classified by S for spiral. Why not a K? I don't know, but right? Something different. Um, or SB for spiral barred, barred spiral. So S, S means spiral, SB means spiral with a bar. Easy ones to remember, right? They won't all be that way. There's actually one, one that will throw, throw a little bit. And then after that, you put a lowercase letter, either an A, B, or C, after that, which tells how tightly wound and the spiral arms are and how big the central bulge are. So an SA galaxy has really tightly wound spiral arms, many circlings there, and the bulge is very large. An SC galaxy has a really tiny bulge and the spiral arms are just kind of spread out there, wide open. Again, the reasoning is just this is they are classed by appearance. Doesn't mean any, it doesn't have any other meaning any more than the original classification of stars had any meaning. But they're classified by how by their appearance. So an SA, SB, SC. And it just has to do with how tightly wound the arms are. Barred spirals are exactly the same, except you put the capital B in there. So SB, uh, S capital B would be a barred spiral. We're actually an SBB, so we're a spiral with a bar, and we're kind of in between the two. We don't have a gigantic bulge, we don't have a tiniest bulge, our arms aren't really tightly wound or really wide open, we're kind of in between the two. So that would be what we, how we would be classify our Milky Way from the measurements that we can make from inside. So again, the galaxy, the, the spiral galaxies, I hope the classification makes sense, right? Easy to remember, S for spiral, add a B for barred, and then it's just A, B, or C, depending on the structures of the spiral arms and the bulge. Elliptical galaxies. Well, they're not as pretty to look at. You put up the, I don't, you don't look at a lot, of, see a lot of pictures. If you go back through the archives of the picture of the day, you're not going to find many elliptical galaxies because they're not. 
You know, there's nothing amazing there. What does it look like? It looks like a star, right? You've got a big blob there. That's actually a blob with billions of stars in it. I didn't say which one that was. Uh, but that's a big, uh, this is actually a big glob of stars, and there's more stars out in this halo here. It's a big uh, spherical grouping of stars. They're in the shape of either a sphere or an ellipsoid. Ellipsoid, just kind of a squashed sphere. But what we see when we look at them is that there's no trace of spiral arms. No matter any of them that you look at, whatever orientation, there's no spiral arms in them. There's no dust or gas. So it's just nice and clean. It's just stars you're looking at. No young stars. So no population one stars. None of the young stars. Lots of, it's essentially all population two, all the older stars. And no emission nebulae. Again, this is all things that show star formation. You don't see any sign of star formation in these in the recent past. 10 billion years ago, yeah, there was a lot of star formation because those stars are there, but nothing formed a billion years ago or a million years ago like they did within our galaxy. They also have a very big range of sizes. Spiral galaxies may vary by a factor of 10 maybe from the biggest to the smallest. You might have galaxies that are two or three times the size of our Milky Way or a half to a third the size. They're all relatively close to the same size. Elliptical galaxies have the biggest and the smallest galaxies. They're giant ellipticals which are tremendous in size which dwarf our Milky Way. And there are dwarf ellipticals, some of which are orbiting our Milky Way. They're little tiny galaxies, barely bigger than star clusters. So we have a big variety in terms of the sizes for the elliptical galaxies. However, when we classify them, we don't classify based on size, we classify them based on shape. And they are classified based as E for elliptical. Well, we're two for two, we're really doing well. Uh, e for elliptical, for being an elliptical galaxy, and then use the numbers 0 through 7. So E0 is a spherical. E7 is the most ellipsoidal, the most as squashed as they get. And they don't get squashed down to a disk. Remember, so they're not disk galaxies, maybe the shape of a football would be about that shape. That would be about as squashed as they get. That would be classified as an E7. So again, letter E and then a number in this case, 0 through 7, depending on how squashed they are. So again, just like the spiral galaxies, they're all classified based on how they look. So there's no deeper meaning to it that we know of yet. That was originally the case with uh, classification of stars. We didn't know why they were, uh, why they were, well, we knew the classification, they were classified on the appearance of their spectra. Well, maybe we'll come, eventually come to some deeper understanding here. All right, so that was spiral and elliptical. A fourth type, two, two types of spirals, spiral, barred spiral, and elliptical. So a fourth type would be irregular galaxies, which are irregular, don't have any particular shape to them. It's just kind of a blob there. It's not spherical. It doesn't have any kind of disk or spiral arms to it. They do contain cold gas and dust, so they do have star formation. So they're like a spiral galaxy in that they have gas and dust and are forming stars, but they don't have the spiral structure. They're generally a lot smaller. They generally contain both populations of stars. And they're classified not as I, but as IRR for irregular. So an irregular galaxy would be IRR. There's actually subdivisions within them that I'm not going to go into. 
here. So irregular galaxies are just classified as irregular. Uh, they're just a big blob of stars, but different than things like elliptical galaxies, which are also a blob of stars, in that they have, first of all, they're much smaller and they have lots of gas and dust, so they're forming stars like a spiral. The last one is the lenticular galaxies. Well, we got four right, we can't get all five. So lenticular galaxies are not L, they're actually S's with a zero after them. So that's the one for classification that you got to actually think of. So the disk galaxies, they are disk galaxies, they're flattened down like a spiral. So if we could look at this, this is actually a flattened, gal flattened down galaxy, but they have no gas and dust and therefore no star formation. So that's why I said they're kind of like a cross between a spiral and an elliptical. They're like a spiral based on their shape, flattened down to a nice disk, a pancake shape with a bulge at the center, but they don't have spiral arms, they don't have any gas and dust, and therefore they don't have any star formation. So they're kind of in between. You can have them as S0, which would be a regular lenticular, or you can have one with a bar going through it. You could actually have the, the bulge going through as a bar, but with no spiral arms. So you can have an SB0 as well. So that's the only one if you've got to think of them. Most of the other ones are more intuitive. S spiral, E elliptical, IRR irregular, and then S0 or SB0 for the lenticular galaxies. So galaxy evolution I mentioned a little bit that you know Hubble probably thought that this was an evolutionary sequence that galaxies would change types from one to another. It's difficult to understand how this could happen. So can you take a galaxy here, it's got lots of stars, but no gas and dust. So you could imagine perhaps it collapsing under gravity to something flatter. Okay, I mean that's imaginable. And then it might flatten down to a disk, like a lenticular. But to go from there to a spiral, where do you get all the gas and dust? Where do you pick up this cold gas and dust and all of a sudden start forming stars that didn't exist before? We know it's not in these galaxies, so it's not just hiding there, it's just not there at all. So it's very difficult to imagine how that would go, that would form. Also difficult to imagine is galaxies slowly here. You might think of spiral galaxies, well maybe the arms would slowly wind up. They form, the arms are spread out, as they spin a few times, the arms start to wind in a little bit slowly. You could also maybe imagine them eventually using up their gas and dust and becoming a lenticular galaxy. Still be a disk galaxy, would have used up all its gas and dust. But how do you take something that's flattened and expand it out to a sphere? You've got to do a that takes a lot of energy to do something. If you have something that's flattened into a disk and you want to spread it out into a sphere, it takes a lot of energy. So it's not something that would be a natural part of the evolution. It can happen. That one actually can happen in that uh, the collision that we looked at with us in Andromeda, the result will probably be an elliptical galaxy. The two galaxies will smash together, use up all their gas and dust from a massive burst of star formation, and that massive collision of their gravitational fields will then spread the stars all out, disrupt the disks, and just have stars all over the place and form a gigantic uh, elliptical galaxy. So you might imagine it going that way, but it's not something that's just going to be a natural, quick evolution. It takes collisions in order to 
do this. You, would, you might imagine some of this thing happening or this part happening, but you can't really make the jump from spirals to ellipticals very easily. All right, so finishing up here, we classified them into five types. So spiral, barred spiral, elliptical, irregular, lenticular. So five different types of galaxies that we see. And every galaxy that we see is classified into one of those. There's also sometimes called peculiar galaxies, which are things that look like one of the galaxies but have something odd about them. So there are also, that's not really a specific classification. Uh, I talked about how you divide them into subclasses. And mentioned at the end what galaxy evolution is like is probably caused by collisions between galaxies and that galaxies have slowly built up over time from smaller galaxies through those collisions. All right. Questions? All right. Well, let's look at this again. This probably looks familiar, I hope, since we just, I just gave a similar graph when I looked at our Milky Way. Um, what are the masses of the galaxy? So how can we determine the mass of a distant galaxy? And it just went through all this. Use Kepler's laws. Look for the stars at the furthest distance. Measure their speeds. And what you'd expect to see, just based on the disk that you see here that you, of the galaxy, you'd expect the speeds to go up, peak, and then start to drop off as you got further and further away. Just based on the mass that you can see, this is the prediction. The observation instead is something like this. The, the velocities get faster and faster and faster as you get further out. So you can measure the rotation speeds for a spiral galaxy. Elliptical galaxies, this, that doesn't work because they don't have a disk or any kind of rotation speeds. But you can measure their spectral lines. They're, essentially it gives you a measure of how spread out the velocities are. So there's a way to measure it for elliptical galaxies as well. And the problem is that there's far more mass, not just in our galaxy, but in every, almost every galaxy we look at, and certainly any large galaxy, every one we look at has this type of curve. We don't see galaxies that do this. If we did this for our solar system, it would work perfectly. If we took the sun and we did Mercury and Venus, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and so on, they'd all follow a curve just like this. So what it tells us is that there's a lot of mass out there that we can't, we're only seeing its gravitational effects. We're not seeing it by any other method. So in terms of the range of galaxy masses, um, ellipticals have the widest range. And you can have ellipticals going from mass of 10 to the fifth, 100,000, to 10 trillion, 10 to the 13th power solar masses. Really tiny ones. Gigantic things, much more massive than our Milky Way. Um, in terms of sizes, again, the sizes, they also vary. Most of what this is showing in terms of everything else is that the sizes are biggest range for the ellipticals. And the irregulars tend to be the smallest on the average. They tend to be a lot smaller than the spiral galaxies. So spiral galaxies are kind of somewhat in between. The ellipticals have the most, the most uh, largest galaxies. and the, and the smallest, and ellipse spirals and irregulars are kind of in between, but the spirals tend to the larger size. Maybe you need something with that certain amount of size to be able to develop the spiral structure. And if it's smaller, then it just remains as an irregular. 
Now in order to try to understand some of these, we want to look at what we call the mass to light ratio of an object. How much mass there is divided by how much light it's giving off. So we take this, let's start off with the sun. We look at the mass of an object in solar masses. Mass of the sun is one solar mass. right? That's by definition. And we look at the luminosity of the object in solar luminosities. Well, sun is one solar luminosity. So one solar mass, one solar luminosity. If we divide those two, one solar mass divided by solar, one solar luminosity gives one for the mass to light ratio. So stars like our sun would give a mass to light ratio of one. Something with a really small number is giving off a lot more light relative to its mass. So a very massive star would have a much smaller mass to light ratio. It might be 40 or 50 times the mass of our sun, but it might be giving off billions of times the amount. So it's giving a very, very small mass to light ratio. A very small star might have a really big mass to light ratio giving off lots, have, have very little mass, but giving off even less light. So this is important. This is one of the ways that the text uses to kind of look at this. So if we want to look at this for some stars, some examples here, low mass stars add lots of mass to the galaxy, but don't add a lot of light. So they help increase the mass to light ratio. The high mass stars do not, uh, do not give off, contribute a lot of light compared to their mass. So they have a small mass to light ratio. So if we look at a very small number, a young galaxy, so things like spiral galaxies that are still forming stars, have lots of young, bright, hot stars, are giving off a lot of light relative to their mass, and they may have a smaller number, something in the order of 1 to 10. So just taking all the mass they've got, dividing it by all the luminosity that we see. Old galaxies might be more of the range of 20 to 30. So when we look at elliptical galaxies, they're going to have a much larger mass to light ratio because all of those really high mass stars have died off. They're all gone. So all that's left is the lower mass stars, which pushes the mass to light ratio up. So looking at that for a galaxy is a way to tell something about it. When we start factoring in dark matter, dark matter is adding to the mass but it's not adding to the luminosity. So if you have something with a lot of dark matter, this number can get even bigger and bigger. Because you double or triple the mass, luminosity is still exactly the same. though It's only the luminous matter. So it's a way of trying to measure when we can determine how much mass and how much light something's giving off. It's just kind of a convenient way to be able to study this. So when we talk about these ratios, they're for the inner parts of the galaxy, the part that we can see. But most of the ga- galaxy is invisible. It's the dark matter that we talked about. So this dark matter is, giving, is, is adding a lot of the mass. So it adds mass to the galaxy, does not add light, therefore really high mass to light ratios. If a galaxy has a lot of dark matter, its mass to light ratio is going to increase drastically. When we just look at the galaxy itself, right, the little bit of a galaxy, all those pictures that I showed you in the last section, that doesn't really add in the dark matter because we're looking at only the galaxy. Every galaxy we look at seems to have some amount of dark matter. Some have more, some have less, but it's not something that seems to be missing from any galaxies. 
We actually get some of these, with some of those with really lots of uh, dark matter can get up to a mass to light ratio of 100. So you can imagine, you know, an old galaxy there was 20 or 30. You're putting a lot of material in. That's a lot of mass that has to be out there in dark matter to be able to push that up over 100. So really, in order to understand a galaxy, we have to try to understand dark matter. Because that's most of the galaxy. It's like trying to understand our solar system by just studying the planets. Well, the sun is most of the mass of our solar system. So our solar system is dominated by the sun. So in order to understand a galaxy, we have to be able to understand this dark matter. It's something we've only known about for a few decades now. Has it been 70s? So talking about 40-ish years that we've known about this. So go back further than that, we didn't even have a clue that the dark matter existed at that point. Something we've only detected you know, within recent lifetimes, essentially. So, all right, so let's look at the distance scale here. Again, we're still going to talk, still have a little more to talk about dark matter later on. Uh, but extragalactic distance scale. We want to determine distances. If you remember, we talked about parallax for stars. We could use parallax, measuring the angular shift of a star, to be able to measure its distance. That doesn't work for galaxies. All of the galaxies are way too far away, even for the most modern. Uh, satellites that we have making these measurements. Remember, those were going to get, what, a third to a half of the size of our Milky Way, which is great, but it's still not getting us anywhere near these other galaxies. So, in fact, it's only in the closest, stars, closest galaxies that we can actually see individual stars to use things like spectroscopic parallax. Right, we did a couple labs based on that, measuring the apparent and absolute magnitudes. The one that we can use are the Cepheid variables. So Cepheid variables are variable stars that Henrietta Leavitt gave us almost 100 years ago, the fact that there, were, there was a relationship between the period and the luminosity. So if we could find one in a distant galaxy, find a Cepheid there, we could measure it, measure its period. That gives us its luminosity. If we know how luminous it is and we know how bright it appears, we can then get the distance. So there is a way to be able to do that using Cepheids, but still it only works for the nearby galaxies. This is the method that Edwin Hubble used to show that the Andromeda galaxy was not part of our galaxy back in the 1920s. So even 100 years ago that was still debated. Was, was the Andromeda galaxy a nebula in our galaxy or is it another distant galaxy? We didn't know that 100 years ago. Not confirmed until Edwin Hubble made his measurements, found Cepheids there and found out that they were not thousands or tens of thousands or even a hundred thousand light years away, but they were millions of light years away. So that's actually how we were able to determine that. But again, these only work for the nearest galaxies. We need other methods to be able to do this. And we need to use uh, standard bulbs. Terminology I've always used is standard candle. Your textbook uses standard bulb. If I happen to jump and back, I want to put both of them up there because if I jump back and forth and stay standard candles, uh, a bulb means the, same, means the same thing. It's just the terminology your text uses. Um, we need to use other methods. So the standard bulb or standard candle is an object that has the same luminosity. They're all standard. Right? Take a bunch of 100 watt light bulbs and put them at different distances in the dark. Well, you could tell which one is further away because it's going to look fainter. Right? They're the same brightness, but if one is twice as far away, it's going to appear fainter than the one that's twice as close to you. 
They're all giving off the same amount of energy, but if it has to travel a greater distance, it gets fainter and fainter and fainter. Same thing with like headlights. If you're watching headlights, if you imagine all headlights are the same brightness, you can see you know, off in the distance, you can judge at night how far away a car is based on how bright the lights appear. Not perfect that because you do that one because you do get variations in them. But that's what we mean by a standard bulb is that they all have the same luminosity. And that any variations in the apparent brightness only depend on distance. So once we can find one of these objects that has a standard brightness, all we have to do is measure its apparent brightness and get the distance. Because once we see it, we know how bright it is. We know its true luminosity. That's why it's standard. It's a 100 watt light bulb puts out some amount of light. The only measurement difference would be how far away it is. Now, if you threw in some 50 watt bulbs or 40 watt bulbs or 20 watt, then you could screw everything up. Because you'd have all different brightnesses. Then you would, they would not be standard. They would not all be the same brightness. So one of these, and in fact the best one to use, uh, one of the biggest ones to use, is the Type 1A supernovae. Right? Remember supernovae types that we did a little while back? There were two of them. There was Type 2 was a massive star exploding at the end of its life. Type 1 was a white dwarf that overloaded. Got too massive and ripped itself apart. Those are the ones that we're interested in right now. Type 2 supernovae aren't standard because the star might have been 30 solar masses or 50 solar masses or 80 solar masses. They could have been a wide variety of mass. But a type 1 supernova is always the same object. It is a, it is a white dwarf star that just hit its 1.4 solar mass limit. So every single type 1 supernova that we see is a white dwarf star exploding at 1.4 solar masses. They're all the same. So the inference is then that every single one is going to be the same and is going to get the same peak brightness. That means we can measure, if we see one, we can measure the distances. And not just nearby galaxies, not just things that are a few million or tens of millions of light years away. I mean, those seem like nice, great distances to us, but when we're talking about a universe that is 14 billion light years to the edge, quote edge. Um, that's not, that's not, that's just, you know, our backyard. We can detect these out to about 8 billion light years. Not to the edge of the universe, but we're getting way out there. We're getting, you know, two-thirds of the way. And we can see things like that. This is an example of an image of one. This is the galaxy here in March. Just a few months later, you can see the bright spot right there actually appeared. That was a supernova exploding. And if we can determine which type it is, if it turns out to be a type 1, we measure its peak brightness, and that allows us to determine the distance to that galaxy. That's great. The only other problem you have is that you can't pick. I want to figure out the distance to that galaxy. Well, you might sit there and twiddle your thumbs for a thousand years waiting for that type 1 supernova to go out there. So you're kind of at the mercy of random chance. Which ones happen to have a supernova go out? We can determine the distances to those. If this one hasn't had a supernova for 500 years, we don't know anything about it. We can't measure its distance using this method. So has to be one that has a supernova go off. There's nothing we can do to encourage that. We can't go, oh, we want a supernova to go off in this galaxy so we can get its distance. So it's different than parallax where you can just say, I'm going to measure the parallax of all these stars. Every star shifts. Spectroscopic parallax, you can use that. Cepheid variables, as long as you can find a Cepheid, you can use that. Type 1 supernovae is great because it goes out to 8 billion light years, 
but it doesn't help you a lot with any specific galaxy. But these are going to be very important for determining distances and understanding how our universe has evolved and changed over time. There are some other methods that are used. Uh, the Tully-Fisher relationship is one which looks at the luminosity of a galaxy versus its rotation rate. So you look at its luminosity, how bright it is, you look at its rotation rate. Don't worry about all the numbers on the graph here. Uh, essentially this is a velocity, measure of velocity, this is a measure of brightness, and that there is a relationship for spiral galaxies. The dark dots and the lighter dots are the lenticular galaxies. So what it means is that the ones that are more luminous spin faster, the ones that are less luminous spin slower. So if you measure its velocity here, you can get a relationship. It's like the uh, relationship that we had for Cepheids. You could measure the pulsation period, you could then determine the magnitude. Here you measure the velocity that it's spinning and you can determine a magnitude and that allows you to get a distance to it. Again, all you need to do is determine its luminosity. If you can figure out its luminosity through some method. This is one that is used but only works for spiral galaxies because elliptical galaxies, remember, are just big bulges of stars. They're going around randomly. They don't have any coherent rotation to use this. And then finally, um, we measure that. Well, how do we measure it? We can actually use visual observations, but for the most part it's done through that hydrogen line at 21 centimeters. And once we do that, we can measure the velocity. So we measure what's on this axis. We can say that on average that star or a galaxy with that is going to be so, so bright. Once I determine the absolute magnitude, it's just a spectroscopic parallax calculation. You get the absolute magnitude, you measure the apparent magnitude, put the two together gives you the distance. Again, that only works for spiral galaxies, but it is another method that can be used and all of these methods kind of have to build on each other. So we have to take one method to build on the other you know, Cepheids might get you out to this range, which might get you to help to a distance of a galaxy that doesn't have, you know, might help you with galaxies that haven't had type 1 supernovae go off. So, finishing up this section, um, we can measure the masses of galaxies using Kepler's third law as modified by Newton, which put the mass part in there. I talked about mass to light ratios. Again, the massive amount of mass an object has compared to the amount of light it's emitting in terms of solar units. So the sun is one. One solar mass, one solar luminosity, it has a mass to light ratio of one. And we can use distances of galaxies, we can use uh, Cepheid variables for nearby ones, or we can use the things like the Tully-Fisher relation that we just looked at, or the type 1 supernovae, all of which are classified as standard bulbs, standard candles, to be able to determine those distances. All right. Questions? No? Already? Well, let's look at the expansion of the universe then. Um, this was actually discovered uh, by Vesto Schleffer at the Lowell Observatory. Actually, at the time he they were studying, back in 1912, they were looking at all these spiral nebulae, not as galaxies but is maybe these were planetary systems forming. Remember I said it wasn't until the 1920s that Hubble 
found the distance to the Andromeda galaxy, kind of convincing that all these spiral galaxies were really other galaxies. So back before that, they were looking at these as maybe they were collapsing planetary systems. So they were taking spectra of those. And what they found is that most of them gave a very large redshift. That spectral lines that you'd see at rest were all shifted all the way up across the board to the red there. And then Lemaitre in 1927 uh, published a paper suggesting an expanding universe. It was the first suggestion of an expanding universe based on these observations that had been made. Now this was followed up by Edwin Hubble. Come back to Mr. Hubble again. Uh, But what he looked at is he published his paper in 1931 looking at finding a relationship between the velocity of an object and its distance. His earliest data were not too conclusive here. This first one here, they're kind of spread all over the point. There is definitely an increase, but it's not as easy to see. When he was able to add in a few more distant galaxies, there's really a very distinct relationship between the velocity, how fast these galaxies were moving away from us based on their redshift, and how far away they are based on other measurements. Based on Cepheids, based on Tully-Fisher relationship, based on type 1 supernovae. You can use all of those to determine distances. And now we have another method to determine distance. Once we get this set and we determine distances to a few of these, Hubble's law says that there's a relationship between the velocity of recession, v, and the distance, d. h is Hubble's constant. So if you measure one of those, you can determine the other. Well, velocity is easy to measure. As long as you have something where you can measure a spectrum and measure the amount of this shift, you can then determine the velocity. Once you do that, you can go over and just read off the distance. No extra step here. Hubble's law works great. Once you determine the velocity, you get your spectrum to determine the velocity, you have your distance. Most of the others, you then determine the luminosity, and then you got the distance. So it was kind of a little, uh, an extra less step here, but it's another way to be able to determine distances to objects. The question was what the exact slope of this line was, which is Hubble's constant what the exact positioning of it is. You got a pretty good idea here, but as we got more and more, there were some errors and there was a debate as to whether it was tilted up a little more or down a little more. So what is the value of Hubble's constant? If we can determine that, we can determine the distance to any galaxy as long as we can get a spectrum. And as long as it's not too close to us, remember Andromeda is not red shifted but blue shifted. That's just local gravitational effects because we're in a cluster. So if you can ignore that and get to galaxies further away, as long as you can measure it, you can then determine the distance. And right now we estimate Hubble's constant to be 22 kilometers per second per million light years. What does that mean? Well, that means a galaxy that is a million light years away would be receding at a speed of 22 kilometers per second. If it was 2 million light years away, 44 kilometers per second. If it was 3 million light years away, it would be 66 kilometers per second. 10 million light years away, 10 times that amount would be 220 kilometers per second. So if you could measure that, so if you can measure, now if you can measure any distance, all you have to do, or sorry, measure any velocity, you just divide it by 22. So measure that velocity in kilometers per second, divide it by 22, and that is the distance in millions of light years. 
very easy way to get distances. The difficulty is that it depends on everything we've done before. It depends on the supernovae. It depends on the Tully-Fisher relationship. It depends on parallax. So any little errors build up going into calibrating Hubble's law. If we knew exactly what this value was, it would be perfect. There's still some variation in what that is. So, and there is some also some discussion as to is Hubble's constant really a constant? So what we have, one of the difficulties is, is when we look out in space, we look back in time. So if we use this to determine distances, that means that we're assuming that Hubble's law today and Hubble's constant is exactly the same 10 billion years ago as it is today. Well, why might it change? Why might things change down? Give one easy one is gravity. Right? Things are expanding apart, but they've all got a gravitational force on each other. So they should be slowing down. Right? Every galaxy is pulling on every other galaxy. It should slow the expansion. So based on that, you would think that galaxies should have been moving faster in the past and moving slower now. Doesn't mean they're going to necessarily stop. They might be moving way too fast for that, but they should be slowing down. So if gravity is the only force involved, it would slow down the expansion rate over time. So, what does it mean? Well, in terms of you know, what does it mean for expansion, I want to define what we call the Copernican principle. Right? Copernic, remember Copernicus took the Earth, Earth out of the center of the universe? <laughs> said the Sun was the center of the universe? Well, the Copernican principle has become the idea that you know, we're not in any special place in the universe. There were times we thought we were at the center of the solar system, center of the universe. Okay, we were at the center of the galaxy. No, we were with, we're, we're, where are we? And we're not in any particularly special place in the universe. That's the idea of the Copernican principle. So, but if we look at all the galaxies, they're all receding from us. It doesn't matter if I look at galaxies there, they're receding from us. The ones down there are receding from us. Every direction, they're all receding from us. Makes it sound like you know, we're stuck at the center. Everything's moving away from us. But it's not. Doesn't matter where you are, which galaxy you happen to be on, you would see exactly the same thing. You can imagine you're on the green galaxy here. All the galaxies are here at some distance from you. As you've expanded, now all the galaxies are further away. But someone on the, what, the orangish galaxy over here sees exactly the same thing. All the galaxies are moving away from them. Every observer is going to see exactly the same thing. And to look at an example of this, Here's a one-dimensional example. You have an expanding ruler. Right? It's easy to go down to one dimension. Just imagine you know, a ruler that stretches out. And the ant here at two centimeters sees everybody else moving away as it stretches. The ants are just sitting there. They're not walking around. So you just have all these ants sitting there. But they'll see this moving, to away, this moving away. So this ant that was here is now further away. But the ant that was at this distance is now even further away. So it doesn't, but it doesn't matter which way you look at it because this, this ant right here sees all these galaxies, these other ants at certain distances, they're all further away. So when the universe expands, it's an expansion of space. Everything gets further apart. So it doesn't matter whether we're here or at any other plate in the universe. Everything is getting further apart. 
So an expanding ruler is one. The other common one that they give is you know, cooking, uh, cooking raisin bread. If you start off with the small, the batter, the raisins are all very close together. As it rises and expands, they get further and further apart. But there's no particular place that is special. Ignore the fact that there's edges here because then there is kind of a special place. But it doesn't matter which raisin you pick to sit on, all the other raisins are getting further away from you. There's no place you're going to pick where anything's getting closer to you. Everything, every, every, every observer on every one of those raisins, just like every one of these ants, is always going to see all the other ones getting further away. That's what we see with our universe. That's what's going on is that every galaxy, so we're not in any, our galaxy isn't in any special place. It's the entire universe that is expanding. And if we were you know, a billion light years away on another galaxy, we'd, see, we'd measure and we'd measure Hubble's law exactly the same. All the galaxies would be receding from that galaxy just as well. So we apply it to the ants on the ruler. We apply it to the raisin bread. We can also, what is really changing, you know, what is really changing in the expansion is that the space between the galaxies is expanding. It's not the galaxies that are expanding. We're not getting larger. Our solar system isn't growing in size. Our galaxy isn't growing in size because of the expansion. Galaxies get no bigger because of this. It's the empty space between the galaxies. So I give a couple of examples there. Galaxies do not get any larger. Planets are not getting further apart. When gravity is there locally, the gravity will bind the galaxy together and it overwhelms the expansion. The expansion is only the empty space between the galaxies. So in reality also there's no edge to the universe, there's no center to the universe. So that doesn't really work with our, that's one of the reasons my examples don't work quite right. You can imagine some kind of center to the loaf of bread or some kind of central portion in here <coughs> that would cause a little bit of a difference. In reality, in the universe, there is no edge. There is, there is no center. So that's a little bit of a difficulty with our, with our examples there. But it is the space that is expanding. It's not the galaxies that are really moving away from each other themselves. It's the whole space that is expanding and carrying the galaxies away with it. All right, so finishing up here. Again, it was only about 100 years ago less than 100 years ago, was when we were first seeing the expansion, evidence of expansion of the universe. Obviously it had been going on for a long time before that. That was when we first detected it. Uh, Hubble is the one who formalized this into what we call now call Hubble's law, relating the velocity of an object to its distance. And it's another way to be able to determine distances. And then finally, as I was kind of trying to go over at the end there, the expansion is space expanding, not a direct uh, expansion of, uh, not a direct motion of the galaxies. It's only the space, not even between the galaxies, but between the clusters of galaxies that is expanding. It's the empty space that is expanding, slowly making the universe more and more empty. All right, so questions? Alrighty. Well, I don't think we'll get through 27, but we'll get through part of it at least. Actually, 21 is a, 27 is a shorter chapter anyway. So let's go ahead and see what we can get through here. And what do we got? About a little less, little more than 10 minutes. Um, now we looked at what we called normal galaxies. I want to look at what we call active galaxies. 
Um, active galaxies are ones that show signs of unusual activity. So there are two differences in what we call a normal galaxy, which is all the classifications I gave you before, spiral, elliptical, etc. But active galaxies can be spiral, can be elliptical, or can be something really odd looking like the one I'm showing you here. But they have two differences. They are brighter. So if you have a spiral galaxy that is active versus an ordinary spiral galaxy, the active spiral galaxy looks brighter. It also gives off a different type of radiation, what we call non-stellar radiation. For the most part, when you look at the light from a galaxy, it's just the combined light from all the stars that made it up. That's it. So here what we're looking at, when we look at an active galaxy, we're actually getting radiation produced by other methods, not by stars, but by, uh, especially by the black hole at the center. That accretion disk produces lots of x-rays, radio waves, different types of radiation than stars typically give off. We also define, and I'll use the term AGN for active galactic nuclei. Uh, typically the textbook goes through this just as quasars, but there's other varieties as well that we'll look at very briefly. And what is really going on when we have an active galaxy, it's not the whole galaxy itself, it's generally the center. It's something going on at the center that is making it an active galaxy. So some of the examples of these, Seifert galaxies are one example. They're examples of spiral galaxies. You can see some of the spiral structure there. But the nucleus is unusually bright. The nucleus dominates there compared to the other spiral galaxies that I showed you a little while ago. The nucleus is unusually bright here. So it's one type of active galaxy. The whole rest of the spiral structure is there, but the nucleus dominates it. We have examples that we call radio galaxies. This is a dual picture. This is actually a visible light picture of an elliptical galaxy there. The reddish colors are radio, is the radio emission. So this galaxy is, does, doesn't look very unusual if you look at it just in visible light. But when you look at it in radio waves, it has these gigantic radio lobes coming out. Great jets of material spewing out from it. It's again an example of an active galaxy. It's giving off lots of radio waves that we wouldn't otherwise normally see in a galaxy. Um, then we could also have what we call blazars, which are the central portions of elliptical galaxies. When we look down here at one of these, when we look close in at that central portion, we can get what we sometimes call a blazar as a, the central portion of that. And again, it all comes down to the central parts of the galaxies. What's going on in the central portions? The main one I want to talk about, though, and what your book goes through, is a quasar. Uh, quasar is a quasi-stellar radio source, is the official naming of it. Essentially, when they were discovered, they were stars. They looked like stars. In fact, some of them still have star names associated with them. So they were a star-like object, but they emitted radio waves. Now, our sun emits radio waves, but most stars don't give off a lot of radio waves. And if we try to study other stars with radio waves, it's not a very easy thing to do. These were emitting lots of radio waves. They were some very strong radio sources. And they were also very mysterious objects. The spectral lines that we found didn't match up with anything that we saw here on Earth. So was it, were they made up of some other type of elements that we didn't know? You know that happened with the sun, that we found helium in the sun. But that was back in the 1800s. 
We still hadn't developed the periodic table very well. By the 1960s, the periodic table was pretty well known. Where are these other elements going to squeeze in? You, know, you can't put an element between hydrogen and helium. There's one, has two, one has one proton, one has two. There's nothing to do in between. So that was one problem. But then what was found, Martin Schmidt in 1963 actually realized that when he looked at this quasar known as 3C273, that the lines that he saw were the same spacing as the hydrogen lines. Essentially, what it was is that this object was just made up of hydrogen, mostly, like any other object in the universe. But it was moving so fast that the, the lines were shifted well away from where anybody would expect them. And in fact, it was receding at 15% the speed of light. Much faster than we can even imagine sending anything. That's how fast it was receding just due to the expansion of space. And based on Hubble's law, once we figure out the velocity, we can figure out the distance. Something traveling at 15% of the speed of light has to be incredibly distant. So what are these objects? Well, they're only star-like. And in fact, there's a picture of one. And it looks just like a star because of their distances, because these things are way out at the edge of the universe. 10 billion light years or more away. They're really the nucleus of a distant galaxy. The thing is we can't see the rest of the galaxy or couldn't see it early on because it was overwhelmed by the brightness of the quasar, which was the central portion itself. So they're really the nucleus of a distant galaxy. We now know of millions of them. And they are receding at incredible velocities. Every single one is redshifted. And they go up to about 96% the speed of light. It's the idea of the expansion of the universe, how fast it is moving. That we're seeing 96% of the speed of light for these. So how does Hubble's law apply here? Well, quasars are parts of galaxies. Since galaxies obey Hubble's law, so should quasars. Since they're all at least 10 billion light years away, they give us a chance to measure distances out to the edge of the universe. Remember, the the supernovae could only be seen to about 8 billion light years. So we couldn't see them at this distance. There are no quasars nearby. So whatever formed these only existed long ago, only existed in the first few billion years after the universe formed. We don't see any now. There is no quasar anywhere close to us. So we're looking at a part of the early history of the universe. So how do we determine its size? Well, we know that their size of the energy source has to be really tiny because they vary quickly. Months, weeks, they'll get brighter and fainter in that kind of period. Something can't get brighter and quicker, brighter and fainter faster than it takes light to travel across it. So the whole idea of the images here is if you have something 10 light years across, the light from this side reaches you. And then five years later, the right light from the middle reaches you. And five years later, the light from the other side reaches you. So if if the whole thing was brightening, then it would start brightening here and it would finish brightening here. And then it wouldn't start to fade until after that. So if something is 10 light years across, it couldn't vary in time periods of one year, or one month, or one week. If these things are varying in brightness in weeks, they can only be about the size of the solar system. 
So the energy source for the quasar can only be about the size of our solar system. What is the energy source? Well, the energy source of these is believed to be a supermassive black hole. So you get the black hole at the center, accreting material inside. That is what's giving off the energy. Now that happens in our galaxy, that happens in other nearby galaxies. Why is it so different out here? This is the early history of the universe. Everything was, remember the universe is expanding, so the universe was smaller. Collisions were more frequent. That black hole was getting fed not just a solar mass every once in a while, but could be any tens or hundreds or thousands of solar masses, converting that into energy and then giving off all of that energy. So that's why that comes out so, so much that it's giving, there was a lot more, a lot more energy around to be able to, uh, to be able to give off at these, time, at these times early on in the history of the universe. And the only way we know of to do that is using a supermassive black hole. So finishing up here, um, active galaxies, there were, there were two differences between active galaxies and ordinary galaxies. They emit more energy and a different type of energy. Quasars, again also sometimes called QSOs or quasi-stellar objects for ones that are not, um, not radio sources are a very important type of active galaxy and we now know that they're actually the cores of distant galaxies and the energy source of them is a supermassive black hole at the center. And what I'll finish up on Tuesday, I have one more section of this to go through uh, about what's powering, we're going to a little bit more about the power and looking at the evidence for the supermassive black holes. But you should be through almost everything you need to do homework for and that way if I leave that due then at least I can put the answer key up on uh, Wednesday morning for you of next week. So I'm going to leave everything as it is. We'll certainly be through everything we need for the exam so the exam will be just fine because we can finish up the last little bit of 27 next week. So have a great break, great Thanksgiving if you're traveling, travel safely and I will see everyone on Tuesday.